perhaps one of the most engaging, uh, intriguing books that I've read is C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Screwtape Letters. Uh, it's written in the form of letters that were written by a senior devil named Screwtape to a junior devil, his nephew, named Wormwood, on the arts and skills of how to keep people from coming to faith in Jesus, and for those who are Christ followers, how to continually interfere with their lives of obedience to Jesus. In the very first chapter, he encourages his nephew to use the power of visible reality. Remember now, whenever he talks about enemy, he means Jesus. This is what he says. This is Screwtape, the senior devil speaking. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy was, of course, at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw 20 years of work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I would have been completely undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at that part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that he needs to go for lunch. And by the time that I added, much better to come back after lunch to such an important topic and go to it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. And then we read these words. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper, a number 73 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten him into an unalterable conviction that whatever ideas might have come up into his head when he was shut up alone with his books, this healthy dose of real life by which he meant the newspaper boy and the bus was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. We are up against this every day. And never is this more powerfully at work than when we are dealing with that central doctrine of the Christian faith, the visible return of our Lord Jesus Christ in majesty and glory to set up his visible temple and usher in the new king, new heavens and the new earth. We get up We go to drive, we drive on the highway, we get to our places of work. We put in a full day's work in our offices, in our schools, in our hospitals, on the streets. We come back home, we cook dinner, help our kids with our homework, catch up on the latest news, and go all the way, do it all over again. Everything seems to continue the way it has always been. Yes, ISIS has made life a little bit more unpredictable in some parts of the world. And yes, the economy is tottering for a variety of reasons. But you know, the earth still takes 365 days to go around the sun. The earth still rotates 24 hours every day. The four seasons come and go. In the face of this relentless barrage of what Screwtape calls healthy dose of real life, It becomes almost impossible to really believe that Jesus is going to come back one day in visible glory and power and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. In the kind of apocalyptic language that the New Testament talks about. The first century Christians face this. In one of the letters written to a church in the first century, the author writes this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The first century church faced a regular barrage from scoffers who said, come on, you got to forget this nonsense. Jesus coming back 
New heavens, new earth, forget it. It's never going to happen. Everything is just continuing and has been so for 1800 years from the time of our father Abraham. So what are you talking about this? Just get over it, forget it. Screwtape was alive and well 1800 years ago. That is why it is so important in this Advent series on a focus on Jesus. To focus upon Jesus as coming king. In some ways it is perhaps the most relevant of the four messages as far as Christmas is concerned. Because in Advent we are not just simply remembering some nice things that happened 2000 years ago. Recovering some nice sentiments about goodwill and peace and happy holidays and babies in mangers and silent night. No, no, we're actually reliving the events of the first advent so that we can tighten our grip on the certainty of the second advent and live our lives in the light of that. That's why I said this fourth message on Jesus as coming king is perhaps the one that's most relevant to advent. And very much like John the Baptist was a voice crying in the wilderness preparing the people of Israel for the first coming of Jesus. So my calling as a preacher and many pastors will be preaching today and have already preached in various parts of the world. Are very much like John the Baptist crying in the wilderness preparing God's people for a second coming. Um, not that I have any special qualifications. This past Wednesday and many of you regulars know that that's my major day of study. I landed in my study quite aware of the wilderness in my own life. Needing to hear uh, this message. And the text I want to use is, this, is the full text from Second Peter chapter 3. So he says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly body will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? He begins with a categorical declaration. The day of the Lord will come. It's going to come. And then what kind of people you ought to be? And I want you to see the repeated theme of waiting. In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. A few verses later, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent and be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In the light of the emphatic declaration that Jesus is coming back again, Our primary attitude is to be one of waiting. And waiting in the New Testament is not just twiddling our thumbs playing video games. While whatever it is we're waiting for shows up one day. Waiting has a sense of active expectation. And bringing about the very things we are waiting for. And so just the very first thing I want to emphasize. If you're taking notes you can drop it. Write this in 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 your notes section here. We're called to believe and expect. Not just believe but believe and expect that Jesus is coming back. In glory. But of course, as we've seen, visible reality, both external and internally, the scoffers are at work all the time. How are we going to maintain this faith and expectation in the face of this barrage of visible reality, this healthy dose of real life that seems to make it so distant and so unlikely? Well, the answer is always the same. It's invisible reality revealed in God's word. And Peter talks about that. He says... For they deliberately overlooked this fact, the scoffers, and we'll come to them in a minute, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What is his argument? Basically, 
He's, Peter's saying, we've already been through the cycle once. <laughs> he said that the world was first brought into being by the word of God. Genesis chapter 1. That world was sustained by the word of God. It was shaped and filled by the word of God. And then there came the judgment of the flood. By the same word. This world has, we already know in our history, a period of stability followed by cataclysmic judgment. Now we are in a second phase of stability. And how is that being kept stable? By the same word of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Jesus holds all things by the word of his power. Colossians chapter 1 says, in Jesus all things consist together. But he said, just like the first time around. A world that was kept stable by the word of God was judged by the word of God. Don't mistake this stability for thinking the judgment isn't coming. You've already been through it once, you're going to go through it again. That's the point that he's making. And he says, they, the scoffers, are deliberately overlooking the fact. It's an interesting word, the word translated overlook. The dictionary tells me that the word carries ideas of secrecy, hiddenness. When you, add, when you add the word deliberate to it, it means that these scoffers who were discounting the, likely, the, 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 the belief about Jesus coming back were deliberately keeping something hidden behind their back, actively suppressing it. They were forgetting these things. That's why one of the reasons why Peter writes this verse is to remind us to remember and not to forget. So he says, for example, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. We saw that beautiful sketch. If you were here right at 9 o'clock, you saw a beautiful painted sketch of, of the redemptive history leading up to the birth of Jesus. The first advent that we celebrate at Christmas was the fulfillment of millennia of promises from God. That were fulfilled. And Peter saying remember that. And there's another set of promises. That will be fulfilled. In the second coming of Jesus. You, you see the two lines of argument. First of all he says. A stable world held in stability by the word of God. Was judged at the flood. Today's stable world. Held in stability by Jesus. Is going to be judged. A series of promises. Over long periods of time was fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. There are a series of prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. There's only one thing left. This is what we need to remember. This is the essence of invisible reality. So I want to put it in a nutshell. This is how we counter visible reality. I, I've fashioned these words carefully. We counter the relentless attack of visible reality upon our faith. Specifically faith in the coming of Jesus in power and glory. By immersing ourselves in the scriptures. And especially remembering how the prophetic declarations of God. Have always come to pass in creation, judgment and incarnation. Let me read that for you again. We counter the relentless attack of visible reality upon our faith. Specifically faith in the coming of Jesus in power and glory. By immersing ourselves in the scriptures. And especially remembering how the prophetic declarations of God. Have always come to pass in creation, judgment and incarnation. Now, not only does visible reality pose a challenge to maintain this faith and expectation in Jesus' return. There's another practical problem. And that is that we have to maintain this faith and expectation over a long period of time. Time is another factor. A lot of us can pull off things for a short period of time. We can believe amazing things for five minutes. Maybe 30 minutes of this sermon. It all sounds so credible. And then the real life hits us again. 
The challenge is to maintain this over long periods of time. And so the author continues. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Use the same word that the, he used earlier on for the scoffers overlooking. You remember the meaning of the word overlook, which is hidden, secret. So he says, hey, there's one thing. There's one thing you must not overlook. But when he says this one thing don't overlook, you can imagine how important it is, right? What is this one thing, Christians, you must not overlook? The one thing that you cannot keep hidden. The one thing that must be before you all the time. What is that? He tells us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The one fact that we cannot overlook is God's relationship to time. Now he says two things here. One is easy and one is mysterious. You need to put the two together. First of all, he says a thousand years is like a day. That's easy. That's compression of time. Basically what we are saying is that in the light of eternity, one thousand years is a blip. Just like a day is a blip in our life. That we can understand. A thousand years is like a day. But the opposite is not that easy to understand. That one day is like a thousand years. That's not compression of time. That's expansion of time. That we have no experience of. Basically, you put the two of them together. What he's saying is God's relationship to time is different from yours and mine. We We live in time. God is outside of all time. Time itself is part of God's creation, which would have been totally mystifying until Einstein. When he showed that matter, space, and time were actually all related to one another. That's why he said God is not slow as you and I consider slowness. The words fast and slow can't apply to God. They only apply to people who are creatures of space and time. When God is outside of space and outside of time, there's no such thing as slow and fast with God. Everything is an eternal, infinite present now for him. So he's not slow the way we count slowness. Rather he's patient and the, and the Greek word here is the word for the two different words that are translated patience. This is macrothumio, long suffering. He's patient with regards to the fulfillment of his purposes of redemption in our lives. We're, we're an instant society culture. Instant oats, instant coffee, put some money and out comes pop. We want to get there fast. And God works in seven league boots. He just isn't in a hurry. And he can't be stampeded. Those series of events that led up to the first coming of Jesus. The prophecies in particular. The most specific ones that in Isaiah. 42, 49, 50 and leading up to that splendid 53rd chapter. And we, look, we had lots of time to look at those a few years ago in detail. Probably written about 800 years before them. 800 years before those prophecies came fulfilled. And the first 400 of those were easier than the second 400. Because for the first 400 of them, at least there was Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel after that. But the last prophecy in the Old Testament, which was a prophecy about John the Baptist coming before Jesus, was in 400 years of silence. And one of the verses of the songs, talk about that. Nothing, no prophetic voice at all for 400 years. God works slowly. He's not slow, he's patient. And this is why we also need to properly understand this whole business of end times. 
There's no shortage of prophetic preachers on television, especially south of the border, who've been telling us we're living in the last day. Yes, we are, but you know, they didn't start five years ago. They didn't start 10 years ago. They didn't start 50 years ago. You know when the last day started? 2,000 years ago. Because in he, I didn't say that. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author says, God who has spoken to us in various times has in these last days spoken to us in Jesus. 2,000 years ago, the last day started. God's last days had nothing to do with chronology, us, uh, amounts of time. It has to do with what is called eons or ages. Periods of time over which God is accomplishing his purposes. And with the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The last final, the final phase of God's redemptive purposes for this world have been set in motion. There's only one more thing left. His return. That's how you and I need to understand the last. We, we need to forget about this false sense of urgency that is being whipped up. As if that should suddenly change how we live. That's what Peter is talking about here. By the way, Jesus himself gave us very clear hints that this is the way to understand the last days. In Matthew chapter 25, he tells three parables. That all, all are parables about his, his going and coming back. And in every one of them, the key figure goes away for a long time. Remember the virgins, you know, five with foolish virgins, five one, when the bridegroom was a long time coming. Each of the three parables talks about the person going away for a long time. So Jesus himself made it very clear to them that he wasn't going to be coming back anytime soon. Imminent, therefore, the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. What does it really mean? It's not linked to any events that are happening today. It's always been that way. It could be a thousand years, it could be tomorrow. Because all of the major events of God's redemptive work have been set in place with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And we're just waiting for that last event that could happen anytime. But any time doesn't mean that we have suddenly been precipitated into a time of urgency. We don't live any differently than the wise men of God and women of God have lived all along. That's the key point. You're tracking with me? So that's the first one, believe and expect that Jesus is coming back in glory. Secondly, this is important, stop looking for signs. This is another thing that our contemporary eschatology is preoccupied with. Interpreting this and that political event or economic event as a sign that Jesus is coming back. This is why we get all the, we become targets of mockery in public. Because some of them are foolish enough to make wide prognostications about when Jesus is coming back. You know, the Christmas stories don't begin with the birth of Jesus. They actually begin with the birth of John the Baptist. And you remember Zachariah, an old priest. The lot fell to him to burn incense at the time of the evening sacrifice. It would only happen to a priest once in a lifetime. It wasn't guaranteed. It happened by lot. And so Zachariah was already unbelievably thrilled at this prospect when suddenly uh, he, Gabriel encountered him and announced to him that he and his wife were going to have a son and their child in their old age. Now Zachariah asked for a sign and the rest of the story tells us that this sign was not a sign of faith but of unbelief. You know Walter Wangren in his book uh, Reliving the Passion um, on Preparing for Jesus I use that every year during Advent. So once again I read about his powerful insight on this whole matter of signs. What kind of sign? There are signs and there are signs. He says this. He said When in delight I ask for a sign by which to remember some sweet promise, the sign itself becomes a keepsake, a treasure among my possessions. 
It reflects both the trust of the promise and the trustworthiness of the promiser. When in doubt, I demand a sign as proof that a certain promise can and will be kept. That sign becomes a cold legality of contract. It reflects the mistrust of the promise and the presumption of fault in the promise. He uses the analogy of a wedding ring and a prenuptial contract. A wedding ring is a sign of the first kind. It's not really necessary. You trust the spouse who's making the promises and so you trust the promises. The, the ring becomes a beautiful treasured keepsake of your trust. But a prenuptial contract is, presupposes, I can't trust you. It's lack of trust. And therefore I need something legal. And so that sign becomes a sign of mistrust. That's what he's talking about. He says here, in the first case, the signs are unnecessary but are still treasures. In the second case, the signs are not treasures. They are grim necessities made powerful by the legal system. He then applies this principle to our faith in God's promises in general and specifically the promise of Christ's coming. He says, how do you react to the promises God makes to us? In delight or in doubt demanding proofs? Be wary, my friend, this is a key sentence. When God is the promiser, delight and doubt reveal no one but ourselves. Unto faith God grants signs in abundance. But if we feel that we must bind him to his promises by some sign, by some extra proof, which for God is precisely as insulting as it is unnecessary, we will only bind ourselves. And then he asked the question about the second coming. What do you say to that promise of Christ's coming in glory? Do you by your unconscious behavior utter doubt? Does an earthbound vision deny there is visible reality? There's screw tape at work again. Does an earthbound vision deny the possibility? Sadly, the sign of our mistrust shall be the doubt itself. Together with all the anxieties and suspicions and loneliness which doubt engenders. Oh, let our response be as a bride's response to the promise of the bridegroom. Adorning ourselves for his return. Joyfully shouting with the spirit, come Lord Jesus. Then your joy, your sense of assurance and belonging. These shall be the signs of the Lord's trustworthiness. Beautiful, isn't it? So stop looking for signs. This adorning ourselves for his return. Wangarin's metaphor is exactly the emphasis of Second Peter. So having challenged us to believe and expect that Jesus is coming back. Having encouraged us to refute the onslaught of visible reality by remembering the promises of God and how they've been fulfilled in the past. Having pointed out that God is not slow as we count slow but patient and long-suffering. He then tells us how to live. As we wait expectantly. He says that since all of these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. So forgetting about looking for signs. And interpreting historical events all the time. And reinterpreting them because you were wrong the first time. He said, focus upon two things. Lives of holiness and godliness, growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord, and then hastening the day of His coming. So I kind of put this in a nutshell in this one way. The certainty of Christ's return, combined with the uncertainty of the time of His return, are the greatest incentives to holy and missional living. So can you say that with me? The certainty of Christ's return, combined with the uncertainty of the time of His return, are the greatest incentives to holy and missional living. Won't you say that with me one more time? The certainty of Christ's return, 
combined with the uncertainty of the time of his return, are the greatest incentives to holy and missional living. And by the way, they happen to match our purpose statement exactly, right? Remember our purpose statement has three dimensions, the faith community. This is the holy living part of it. It's connecting the Rexdale faith community to Jesus. So we live lives of holiness. And then the missional side, which is the geographical community immediately to us, and the global community, and global poverty is one part of that global community ministry. And so our purpose statement, connecting Rexdale to Jesus' mission, is perfectly in line with the way we should be living in the light that Jesus is coming in glory and power. Now in the first few weeks of the new year, Various sermons from me and other people are going to be unpacking various dimensions of both the faith community connection as well as the global community. But for today, as I draw this message to a close, let me just give you some suggestions of each one of those. First of all, growth in holiness and godliness. Uh, Romans chapter 33, I'm going to look at three verses from the scripture that specifically tie the call to growth and holiness to the second coming of Jesus. Besides this, you know, the time for the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we... By the way, that's one thing we can always be certain of. We're closer than it was yesterday. That much is the only certain thing the scriptures tell us. Therefore, what the night is far gone, the day is at hand. There's the imminence again. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul is using the metaphor of warfare. Remember what we've learned through this, that we are willful, independent people, we are weak people, we are wounded people, and we are in warfare. And so Paul says, you put on, put on the whole armor of God. That's how you live. That's one of the ways in which you wait in expectation for Jesus coming in glory, because His coming in glory is the final defeat of the enemy, and so we're engaged in the battle now. So we put on the armor of God. And by the way, look at the armor. He says, put on the Lord Jesus. Jesus is our armor. That's why the faith community getting connected to Jesus through worship and prayer is clothing yourself with Jesus. That's how you defend yourself against him. He is the breastplate of righteousness. He, the, the word from his mouth is the sword of the spirit in our hands. And then he says, make no provision for the flesh. You might recall in the last message on the sexual sanity series or the uncovered series, we talked about how you fight the battle for lust and not, not just sexual lust, any strong desire. Whether it's anger or materialism or lust, whatever it is. You fight the battle at the right place. The move from restlessness to agitation, not from agitation to alleviation where we give in. Making no provision for the flesh is another one phrase way of saying that. So one of the ways we fight this battle is by looking at all those things in our lives that are moving us from restlessness to agitation in any dimension where lust is taking over. I'm saying, no, I'm going to fight the battle at that point. Eliminate things that may not be bad in themselves, but are not helpful in any way. This is what Paul meant when he said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are not lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. We got to stop. Part of the way of we fight is we stop asking what's wrong with something and start asking what's right with this. How helpful is this for me? And of course the opening words put it in the context of, of that we are in this Kairos moment. The day is at hand. Now the next verse also linking it to the coming of Christ adds another dimension to this warfare. First Peter 4, 7. The end of things is at hand. There it is. The end of all things is at hand. We are in the last days. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-control. 
There are so many things we are anxious about that we can't control. They're all in God's hands. Oh, most of this preoccupation of the second coming of Jesus, interpreting this economic times, oh, we can't influence any one of those things. They are completely out of our hands. He said, focus on the things that you can control, which is what? How you spend your time. That's under your control. So you can release some time to engage in prayer. This is how we fight the enemy. We clothe ourselves. We make no provision for the flesh. And we're also engaged in warfare praying with the enemy. So self-control releases time. And sober thinking tells us how to pray. What are you putting into your minds? Meaningless entertainment? Or that which allows us to think soberly about these things? Sober-mindedness gives us fuel for our prayers. Self-control releases time and opportunity for our prayers. And so we fight that way too. And then thirdly, we do it together. Not alone, by ourselves. Solemn assembly is coming up. Because we pray together. Well, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And notice this, all the more as you see the day drawing near. There it is again. It's directly connected to this topic that we're talking about today. So whether we gather together in large groups every week, or whether we gather together in small groups, maybe not during these two weeks of Christmas, but when we gather together in your life groups, studying, digging deeper, encouraging one another to live this way. We don't fight by ourselves, we fight together. That's why we don't just pray by ourselves, we pray together as well. There are many other dimensions, but these are at least three, that, uh, three texts that came to my mind immediately about Lives of growth and holiness as we wait for his coming. Now the second thing he said to also to hasten the day of his coming. Okay. What does it mean to hasten the day of Christ's coming? Well, again, many of the details are not our control. God knows the time. God knows the time when Jesus is coming again. Jesus himself said that of that day and that hour, nobody knows except the Father. But in the meantime... We have a part to play and hasten that day. What does that mean? How do we, how do we speed up something that's not in our control? Uh, mostly because the one who's in control of it told us what to do. <laughs> you remember in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples said, Lord, when are these things going to be? He said, forget it. The Holy Spirit is coming upon you. You be my witnesses. <laughs> and notice the reason for his long suffering. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, his sound count slowness, but is present, patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And a few verses later, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. So this season of waiting is a season where we are to be actively involved in the proclamation of this message. Both by the non-verbal proclamation of our own holy lives, and then the verbal witness locally, globally. This is the orange and the blue boxes of our mission statement. That's how you speed up. And by the way, here also, screw tape goes to work. And he uses visible reality once again. If he cannot get you, stop you from pursuing a life of holiness and growth, as we have talked about, in the light of your faith in coming, he's going to get you to stop living missionally. And he's going to use visible reality to show you it's no use. My mother has been hearing the gospel in one form or another for nearly 50 years. Still totally hardened. And now get to the point where she doesn't read, doesn't engage in any kind of conversation that's rational in terms of requiring thinking. It's hopeless. 
Last week I read about a football coach in the States, a Christian man who prayed at the end of a football game and was immediately suspended. A Buddhist coach chanted his Buddhist prayers and nothing was done to him. This is real life. And Satan is going to point this out. He said, you think Jesus is Lord? No, everybody else is Lord. It's open season on only one faith in this world. Ours. What is Satan going to say? Don't waste your time. You're not winning. ISIS is winning. Other ideologies are taking over. That's visible reality. He's going to try and get you there. So how are you going to encounter, encounter this? Well, certainly the same way, immersing yourself in what God says about his word, that every tribe, nation and language is going to worship him. But in addition to that, I found in my own experience, not only the word of God, but the work of God in this world also helps me to stay missionally involved. And you know what? So much of the work of God happens in secret. You don't get to see it. All of the metaphors for the kingdom are subversive metaphors. Salt. Yeast. They work their way slowly. You, you plant a seed. You can't dig it up. If you dig it up, it's not going to work anymore. I remember reading an article several years ago about my home city of Chennai. It was called Madras. When I, I was born there. Uh, and they done some very interesting work. And they discovered a whole group of people. They were called the non-baptized background believers. These were people who no longer worshipped idols. They read their Bible every day. They prayed only to Jesus. They just didn't show up in church. And there were more of them in the city of Chennai than all the Christians and all the churches put together on a Sunday morning. I didn't know that. That's God's secret work. And recently I was talking to an international worker from our denomination who works in a very difficult, resistant part of this world. And he was talking about one particular country where Al-Qaeda is strong, where ISIS is gaining strength, where the socio-economic structure is collapsing. It is totally closed. And through an insider that David Haskell was talking about, that kind of person, through a local they discovered a very conservative estimate of at least 1,000 believers from the majority background, probably more, more than 10 times the seven countries surrounding it put together. These things are happening, and it's good for us to know. This is one reason why I encourage you to stay involved in what God is doing in the world, because some of his most active, powerful work is happening far away from us. And it gives us great encouragement here, where visible reality says no point. So we, how do we wait patiently? We grow in holiness. And we hasten his coming. So can you say it with me one more time? The certainty of Christ's return. Combined with the uncertainty of the time of his return. Are the greatest incentives to holy and missional living. Okay we finished our series. We've had a good long look at Jesus. Jesus as Savior coming to help us from the sin of willful independence. And help us to move to willful dependence. Because he learned to obey by becoming a man. Then we looked at Jesus as our sanctifier. One who through the power of the spirit of Christ dwelling within us. Helps us in this life of growth in holiness. Last week we looked at Jesus as healer. Who touches our, not only our physical bodies, but perhaps even more important and urgently, is able to touch us in our emotions and heal us. 
And today we looked at Jesus as our coming king. Who is king today by the way? And who invites us clothed with the armor of God to engage him in holy warfare. In the light of this, what is your advent going to be like? Because <laughs> now the sermons are over. Or into New Christmas Eve and Christmas. Wangren closes with a beautiful question which I will leave you with. What sort of advent is this imminent advent for you? If you are consumed by one, or more, one more Christmas, your advent is fleeting, time-bound and likely self-absorbed. Can you note this sentence, folks? Desperate preparations often indicate an anxiety about the opinions of others regarding ourselves. But if your participation in this temporal advent truly signifies preparations for the final advent, you are indeed Christ-absorbed. So, will it be a self-absorbed advent or a Christ-absorbed one? Jesus, Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. I have a fourfold blessing for you today. For those of you who are still struggling with your willful independence, may you this Christmas season know Jesus as your Savior. Perhaps for the first time or one more time to move to willful submission to Jesus as your Lord. For those of us who have that desire but are struggling in some dimension or other of our life to live lives of holiness and godliness, may you experience Jesus the sanctifier who by the power of his spirit helps you in your weakness because he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. For those who are continuing to struggle with either physical challenges or emotional hurts and wounds that have not yet yielded. May you encounter Jesus the healer in a fresh way who is willing to touch you. And for those who are getting battle weary <laughs> with the relentless attack of visible reality, may Jesus clothe you with himself as your armor. May he give strength to your limbs power to your hands, a sword in your hands, and may you become a soldier of Jesus all over again. Go in Christ's name.